Artistic Whispers Productions presents... Down from Ten, a country house mystery written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net. Featuring the vocal talents of... Philippa Ballantyne. T. Morris. Kitty Nakian. Nathan Lowell. Miss Calendar. Nobilis Reed. Christiana Ellis. Chris Lester. With original music by Danny Shade. This podcast contains adult language, sexual situations, and bizarre humor. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, this is Steve Rickyberg from Geek Cred over at geekcred.net. And you're listening to episode 7 of Down From 10. And this is the story so far. Our heroes only wanted 10 days of R&R and some activities your mother might not approve of. But unfortunately, it seems the mountain had other plans. During the night, it dumped a load of snow on the house, enough to bury it completely. The question is, when everyone wakes up and finds themselves trapped, what happens then? Chapter 7. E-8. Morning. Ash was all that remained, and the acrid smell of warm wood tar wafting out through the vent holes in the fireplace door. The fuel had long since burned itself to exhaustion, and the air in the great room had dropped from a comfortable 70 degrees to the high 40s. Whatever sunlight shone onto the world outside brought neither light nor warmth to any of the rooms. At first... Amos wasn't sure whether his eyes were open or not. Everything around him was very, very dark. Only the merest glimmer of light from the kitchen on the fringes of Carol's hair told him that he was actually awake. Even with the smell of smoke and the funk that grew on most people while they slept, she still smelled of kiwi and tea. After the darkness, and Carol, the next thing he noticed was that his nose was numb, In fact, the only parts of his body with any distinct feeling were the parts where Carol's body pressed down against his. For the space of perhaps four minutes, he couldn't imagine the world extending past his couchly cocoon. It was only slowly that he became aware of the pain in his joints, the little bruise on his leg where Carol's knee dug into his thigh, and the companion on his rib where her elbow pressed. His left arm was cramped from curling into a strange position all night. His hips were killing him. It was cold. Damn cold. He'd stoked up the fire before he'd gone to bed, but there wasn't anything left of it. It should have lasted all night. But now? Not a flicker. Not an ember. And he felt not a modicum of heat. What time was it? He couldn't see well enough to read the mantel clock, but something other than Carol was pressing on his bladder anyway. Very carefully, so as not to disturb her, he slipped out from beneath her and rolled roughly to the ground. He fumbled around on his knees until he found the other couch, then pulled the blanket off its back and dragged it over to cover Carol. In the almost lightless room, he could see little more than the breath in front of his face and the wan nightlight in the kitchen. Amos moved carefully, doing all he could not to stumble and sprawl headlong on the unforgiving floor. 
The kitchen clock read 11 a.m., which couldn't be right. No light spilled in through the dining room windows or the door to the solarium. Damn, Dodd. Wiping away the condensation on the windows didn't tell him anything more about the situation. It looked like someone had blacked out the glass with frost and cardboard. Oh, this can't be good. He hit a light switch and looked closer. It looked like a wall of sand, which could only mean one thing. Amos walked back out to the great room and hung a right into the entryway, turning on the lights as he went. There was a little puddle on the hardwood in front of the door. He grasped the latch, already knowing what he'd find, and opened. As he'd expected, the door opened on a wall of tightly packed snow. He closed the door again, not taking care to shut it quietly. He heard her stirring on the couch. Amos? Amos walked back into the living room. You should have stayed asleep. Her head peeked up over the arm of the couch as she tried to sit up. What's wrong? We're in trouble. The teal silk kimono was no match for Sarah. Three seconds after bursting into her room, she whipped it off the flat of candles in the closet, finding them just where Carol had told her to look. Aha! There you are. Sarah's hands grabbed around each side of the flat and hefted it up to rest against the front of her hips. She thrust against it and heaved once, lifting it up to her left shoulder. Turning back to the door, Sarah tiptoed around the sewing kit, past the pile of unused clothes and towels, the unmade bed, and the rack where her fairy shift was hanging, cut and pinned but not yet sewn. Humming some strains from the new show, she made her way out into the lamplit hallway. Around her, the rest of the house lurched to life like a surly hangover. The shower was running, and through the open bedroom doors she could hear people mumbling and grumbling in a chorus of oddly pleasant irritability. All things considered, maybe she shouldn't have felt quite so chipper, but the truth was that the day before her was going to be a series of fun challenges, and she didn't have to stage manage it. She came to relax and play, and she was getting an adventure as a bonus. She wouldn't have admitted it out loud, because she would never have lived down the fact that she was actually enjoying this, but she felt like she'd just won a bonus round on an episode of Survivor. Carrying cargo for the circus? Adele's voice called from behind her. Sarah turned around to see the missionary wrapped in a robe, her hair done up in a rat's nest, and her face looking years older than it had last night, as if Adele had just dragged herself from a year-long sleep under a creosote bush. Better than that, I'm bringing light and enlightenment to the poor people on the lower floors. You finally awake? I don't know yet. <sighs> What's going on? Didn't Katie tell you about missing staff meetings in the morning? Sarah shifted the load from her left shoulder to her right. Mom wants these in case friend electricity goes bye-bye. Adele looked like she'd just been told that Santa Claus was a child molester. Staff meet. Huh? What in the name of God are you talking about? Get dressed and come downstairs. We'll fill you in. Adele shrugged and said, Okay. As if she were reluctantly conceding to the inevitable maddening of the universe. She stumbled back to her room. Sarah picked up her tune a measure before where she left off and continued towards the staircase. Carol? Gerd tapped on the door to her bedroom and peeked his head inside. She was sitting on the edge of her bed, tying her boots on. 
A word? She looked up to him and nodded. Her face was pensive and determined, but almost eerily calm. On Carol, determination was more worrisome than fretting. Gerd took a couple of steps in and closed the door behind him. I've looked out the windows. I hope you have a plan, Cherie. Gerd. She firmly tied off the last loop on her boots. I live in the mountains. She stood up in her jeans and a knock-around t-shirt that read, Come to the dark side, we have cookies, and raised her eyebrow at him. So, driving in all those tall pipes I saw on the roof? Yes, air exchanges, just in case. Bon, why is it then you are looking so worried? Well, a single woman doesn't live alone in the mountains, away from police without taking some precautions. But if we can't find a way out and people start to get a little stir-crazy... She let the implication dangle. Gerd nodded. I begin to see. You have a way to lock up the firearms, I hope. Yeah. The garden shed is next to the spare room. I think I can just reach the air vent through the window. I just don't know if we'll be able to get to them again if we need them. But why? Well, I can get to the shed from the window if it hasn't collapsed yet. Ah, and if it still stands... It may not for long. Exactly. In Jeremiah's room, Sarah latched the window and shook her head. Even here on the second floor, the snow outside was deep enough that no light shone through. She looked around the room. Jeremiah was downstairs. There was no big hurry to get back there. Her eyes lit on the bedside table, and she smiled. No harm in a little reconnaissance. She opened the drawer in the nightstand and pawed quietly through the haphazard collection inside. He certainly hadn't wasted much time in settling in. The astroglide laid half-empty on its side next to a pack of Kleenex. Good to know some things were constant from one man to another. His driver's license photo made him look a bit like a disgruntled ferret, and he'd brought a copy of Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. Oh, well. Some hopes just weren't realistic. You okay in there? Katie's voice filtered through from the other room. Yeah, it's blocked. Be there in a minute. She quickly finished rifling through the drawer. Cell phone, keys, Ipecac. Ipecac? She added it to the mental list of weird shit about Jeremiah that she carried around in her head and closed the drawer. She found Katie across the way in Amos's room, examining a photo on his bedside table. Done snooping? Guilty conscience? Sarah smiled coquettishly. Bite me. Katie returned the smile, then turned away and headed for the window. Sarah moved down the hallway to Katie's room and continued her mission. Snooping was just a perk. Sarah entered Katie's room and headed straight for the nightstand, but when she opened it, a spring-coiled snake jumped out and hit her in the face. (laughs) Hey now, no snooping. Katie again. Still one step ahead. Sarah recovered her breath and fired back. Moi? Never. She found Katie's sketch portfolio sitting on the dresser and leafed through it quickly, looking for anything new, but stopped short when she found something old. A newspaper clipping from the Daily Review, dated July 15, 1999. Sixteen years ago. Boy dies in fatal poisoning incident. Missing Fremont High School student Eric Johnson, age 18, was found dead of an apparent suicide in his car over the weekend after a four-day search by local police. The car was parked in a lover's lane in the hills above Mission San Jose. 
Anonymous sources in the police department report the cause of death as poisoning, apparently from a cocktail of Jack Daniels and Drano that he mixed himself in the car. Police Chief Munoz was not forthcoming on the details at the press conference this morning, saying only that investigation is ongoing. He requested that anyone who may have seen Eric in the days before his death please contact the Alameda County Sheriff's Department at 510-667-3622. Sarah shuddered as she read it. Katie shouldn't still have that clipping. It wasn't healthy. Sarah? Katie sounded like she was still in Amos's room, but it startled her. She shivered and put the portfolio down, then hurried to the window and pushed it open to check the snow level outside. The 357 Magnum was the last to go into the long sack. Carol wrapped it in an oil rag, sealed it into a Ziploc bag like she had done with the three other handguns, and set it on top of the combat model Mossberg 500-410. She zipped them all, along with the six boxes of ammunition, into the Macintosh fabric duffel. It weighed close to 30 pounds, but she climbed onto the desk by the window, lifted it up, and pushed it through the clear space to the air vent in the shed. It just barely fit. She reached in as far as she could, through the cavity in the snow where the eaves overhung the shed, dangling the bag from the end strap and swinging it around slightly until she felt it touch the shelf. Then she let it go. No crash answered back, just a good solid thump as the bag settled onto the shelf and failed to bounce down to the floor. Good. The vent opening was small enough that only Katie could get through, and then only if she was greased up like a seal in a sex show. She slid the window shut, stepped down off the desk and away from the drapes, and pulled them shut behind her. Near the door, so that she'd always see it on the way out, hung an old, yellowed photo of a young girl sitting in the lap of a fifty-something woman in a tie-dyed frock, both of them smiling brightly enough to light up the room even after nearly three decades. Normally, she didn't come into the spare room when guests were over. Too many memories. All of them good but all of them old enough to bring a thin mist of tears up over her vision. In the quiet, with only the muffled sounds of activity filtering through from the main room, she could still hear the voices that always seemed to haunt her. She could hear them behind her, at the card table. So, do they really tell the future, Gran? Her own voice from another life, maybe. Only eight years old, already curious enough to turn the world upside down. No, dear. They are the future. Her grand's lovely, gentle voice. If she turned around, she was sure she'd see the shadows of the past playing tarot. Will you teach me all their names? Carol smiled. She remembered the whole scene as if it were yesterday. The shadow voices scattered like ash in a breeze when Adele popped her head in the door. Carol? I think we've got an... Adele's eyes followed Carol's to the photograph. Oh, that's gorgeous. Carol smiled and brushed the nascent tears from her eyes. Thanks. Is that your mother? Grandmum. She raised me. She's radiant. Yes. Carol found herself holding on to Adele's arm. It was good feeling someone real in this room with her. She was. Adele patted her hand then swept her eyes over the dated bedclothes on the futon against the near wall, the oil lamp on the nightstand, and the other odds and ends in the room. They predated everything else in the house, including the house itself. Carol looked, too, 
taking the moment to see it through Adele's eyes, wondering what she thought about it all. Did she live here? When it was a two-room cabin. There was a commune up here that she was part of, way back before I was born. Before my parents died, I used to come and visit her. Died? Oh, long time ago. Car crash. Gran built up stakes and moved down to raise me herself when I was six, but before that she was a flower mother. Not a flower child. Oh, no. She was 40 when she caught the bohemian bug, so she thought child was a bit silly. And so you moved back up here and bought her old house? (laughs) Not quite. When she died, she wanted her ashes scattered up here. By that time, the whole neighbourhood had been renovated by dot-commers. Someone built this place on the old commune grounds, and I fell in love with it. So you bought it? Well, it took about 12 years and a couple of big advance checks before I could afford it, but yes, I finally got it a couple of years ago. That's sweet. Being here makes me wish I believed in ghosts. I'd love to talk to her again. Carol looked back at the card table, but she couldn't conjure up the specters with someone else in the room. Not that it would have done any good. The shadows were only shadows, after all. She looked sharply back at Adele. I'm sorry, did did you need something? Oh, yes. Garrett's got an idea for making sure the food stays frozen if the power goes. Splendid. It's so nice to have practical folk around. Carol threw her arm across Adele's shoulder and ushered her out, then followed, turning off the light and shutting the door behind them. Katie strained her eyes, but as much as she tried, she couldn't see anything through the snow but darkness. You done in there yet? Sarah was in Adele's room, like she had been for the last three minutes. Katie didn't need to believe she was psychic to know what the house pet was up to. Just a second, Snoopy. Katie pulled the sash back down and gave Kevin's room a once-over. She wondered how much hotel staff could tell about a person by what they saw during room cleanings. In the three days since he'd arrived, Kevin had made the room well and truly his. Books only he would consider light reading stood on the bedside table. They had titles filled with words like relativity and quantum electrodynamics, concepts she most often encountered when she watched old Star Trek episodes. Three books, like he expected to get through all of them in ten days. His gestalt had settled over the whole room and worked itself into the walls, to the point where every surface announced, I have been claimed by the physics geek with the angel's tongue. Not even a Balrog's tongue could have licked through the snow cone that had been upended over the house. Katie turned back to look at the window and shook her head. It was packed solid, and not a single glimmer of even the bluest light came through it. She knew, because she'd even tried closing the door and turning the lights out. She didn't know how deep snow had to be to look as opaque as plywood, but she'd seen enough National Geographic specials to know that at least blue light should push through a healthy pile of snow and ice. Damn. Katie put her hands on her hips and walked thoughtfully out of the room and around the corner to Gerd's. There, Sarah was struggling with another window that probably told the same dark story. No two ways about it. They were sitting under a snow cone, which pretty much left them well and truly fucked. Oh well, she thought. At least she could help the dancer out with the window. Katie came up to Sarah's right side and bopped her out of the way with her hips. Here, let me. She seized the window frame and pulled the top bar out before pushing it up. After two or three solid twists of her wrist, she heard the sound of ice breaking, and she pushed a second time. 
It slid all the way up. Taking one more hopeless, probing look into the snow, Katie announced, Yep, we're buried in deep. Sarah looked askance at her. That's had me stymied for five minutes and you do it like it's nothing. Keep sculpting and you'll build up your hands. Katie reached into the snowbank and dug out a handful of snow, then extended it to Sarah. Hmm. Sarah leant down to take a bite out of it. Maybe I should. Her eyes darted up from the snowball to Katie's eyes in a predictably unsubtle manner. Can I sculpt you? Katie rolled her eyes. You are such a twat. She took a bite. Mmm. Dusty mountain air, my favorite flavor. Sarah took a couple more bites from the snowball in Katie's hand, then trailed her tongue down from the melting remains of the snow into the palm and outward along Katie's index finger. She took the fingertip between well-chilled teeth and nibbled. You like that? Sarah met Katie's eyes again. Oh, it's cold. She pulled her finger free of Sarah's teeth and shoved the rest of the ice back into the snowbank. You need some meat on me, Chica. Katie almost didn't hear Sarah's words over the sound of the window slamming. Come again? On you. I meant on you. You have been lonely, haven't you? Gods, yes. Producing the show? You have no idea. I thought Garrett was keeping you company. Hey, two nights don't make up for a year riding the buzzing bunny. And all the while with that lovely dancer you brought along. I know, I know. He makes me go all squidgy in the middle. Can't get a leg over? Sarah's eyes seemed to look through the ceiling at some alternate history. <sighs> it won't work. Professional distance. Besides, who the fuck has time anyhow? Katie tried to repress a smile, but she didn't try very hard. Okay, okay. Besides you. Katie's eyes widened in shock. How did you know? Sarah winked at her. You should learn to lock the door behind you. You little sneak! Katie darted her hand to the flesh just beneath Sarah's ribs and squeezed. Sarah jumped and squealed, then batted at Katie's hands for a moment. The dancer's arms were longer and lighter, but as soon as Katie got a hold of one, she stepped in and twisted Sarah's right arm up, pinning it between the dancer's shoulders. So... Katie continued, her face only a few centimeters from Sarah's. What did the little sneak see? I saw what your hands can do. Gorgeous, isn't he? Sarah's breath caught in her chest, but a soft... Yes. ...emerged from her throat. The back of the stout sculptor's free hand trailed over Sarah's breast. The dancer arched up into it, her breath hissing through her teeth. Katie put her lips to the younger woman's ear. You shouldn't be watching at other people's doors. No. It's... Katie wrapped extra air around her words to be sure it tickled Sarah's ear. Very naughty. Yes. It wasn't a word. It was a moan. Kevin rinsed the remains of his freshly trimmed pubic hair from his razor and set it, blade and all, back in its sled. He punched the shower knob, shutting off the water, and pulled the shower curtain back. After patting around blindly for a moment, he gave up and stepped out onto the marble floor like a portable waterfall, then found his towel on the rack and grabbed it. The overfluffed cotton wicked the water away from his skin until he was content that he wouldn't leave puddles wherever he walked. Kevin threw the towel over his shoulders like a wannabe boxer and walked the five steps from the shower stall to the vanity, 
dabbing and scritching behind his ears with the terry cloth as he went. From the second drawer down on the left, he retrieved his deodorant, toothbrush, and shaving kit. Through the concentrated fog on the glass, his form moved like a recalcitrant ghost petulantly refusing to manifest. With a pentagram, a few candles, and a good chant, he could have some fun at the expense of a handful of credulous students. There wasn't any point to that here, but the thought kept him entertained as he readied his other razor and scraped the nascent fur from his face. As he rinsed off his razor, the condensation on the mirror got the better of him. He tried to resist, but the glass was a naked canvas, taunting him with its delicious malleability. He put his fingertip to the fog and traced a large circle, adding two eyes and a smiling mouth, then, after regarding it for a moment, bowed to whimsy once again. He added a little tongue to the side of the mouth. Yeah, that fit the morning well. He smiled privately and unscrewed the cap from his tube of toothpaste. The door swung open behind him to his left, but he didn't bother to check who it was. Adele was the only one who would complain about seeing his ass. If it turned out to be her, it would count as payback for yesterday morning. There you are. Carol sounded relieved. Kevin didn't look at her. The toothbrush-to-toothpaste tube rendezvous absorbed his attention. Without his contacts in, it took both his eyes and a good part of his brain to ensure that the red gel wound up on his bristles rather than on his thumb, or worse, the countertop. Instead of looking at her, he talked in the general direction of the counter, trusting his luck to acoustical science, which he'd managed to avoid taking or teaching over the years. Your grasp of three-dimensional location plotting is truly mind-boggling. He shoved the toothbrush in his mouth and started sloshing the spicy cinnamon lather around his teeth. Carol stepped up next to him and swatted his ass with her bare hand. He stood still, just for the fun of denying her the satisfaction, but somewhere near the bottom of his left butt cheek, his nerve endings decided to start burning down the neighborhood in protest. <laughs> Carol leaned back against the counter and looked sidelong at him. <laughs> You're one sarcastic son of a bitch, you know. I thought scientists were supposed to be mild-mannered and geeky. That's just... Clever propaganda put out by the Astronomers' Union so that we can move around among the hoi polloi without frightening people. Diabolical. She stayed there, breathing. The sound bounced off the marble slab and tiles that decorated the bathroom, and he couldn't help but feel like Darth Vader's adopted daughter was standing next to him, just waiting for the right minute to deploy a lewdly concealed lightsaber and go medieval on his ass. It was Carol, after all. The woman had more spanking implements than you could shake a triple-barbed rattan rod at. Kevin spit his toothpaste out and rinsed his mouth. Before he started in on his tongue, he glanced at Carol. I can leave if you need to take a crap. Oh, I just came to get you. Family meeting downstairs in ten minutes. Don't be late. You could have shouted that through the door. Then I wouldn't get to do this. He felt her hand on his left butt cheek, deliberately squeezing the bit she'd just smacked. She kissed him on his ear, then let him go. Try to be as fast as you are skinny. Hey, just because I have to wear all my insulation on the outside. And coat merchants love you for it, Bonesy. I got a scoot. She ducked back and slipped out the door. He craned his neck back and shouted after her, Anti-scronite! Out of the corner of his eye, he saw something blue on his ass. He reached down and felt around. A sticker. He peeled it off and held it up in front of him, playing a bit of mime trombone to focus on it without his contacts. USDA approved. Ooh, now you're asking for it. This means war. Kevin chuckled darkly to himself and turned back to the mirror. Huh? He jumped in shock. 
He knew he'd left a nicely grotesque smiley face in the condensation, but in front of him there was an intricate fractal. He couldn't be exactly sure of what he was seeing, but as he moved his head around trying to pull focus, he was damn sure that it wasn't anything like what he'd traced there. He could also swear that it was growing and branching like a Mandelbrot set. Kevin reached out towards the mirror. His fingers stretched and probed for the surface, but he didn't seem to be able to find it. Reaching through what he thought was its surface, he felt suddenly cold and panicked, as if everything good in the universe were being sucked up through his body and pouring out through his fingertips into some neighboring dimension behind the glass. His arm was three and a half feet long. The vanity was only 26 inches deep. His hips were flush against the edge of the counter. From shoulder to fingertips, his entire arm stretched out all the way in front of him. And his fingers didn't feel anything there. The click of a door handle sounded like a shotgun in the marble room. Kevin nearly jumped out of his skin and whirled around, fully expecting to see a strange demonic creature creeping into the room to push him through the mirror. It was almost that bad. As Kevin processed what his eyes were seeing, he found himself face to face with Jeremiah, who looked as if he'd walked into a drug deal while he was searching for a knitting circle. Oh. Um, I, uh... Jeremiah seemed to be desperately trying to find something to look at, but his eyes were completely unable to settle. Kevin shrugged internally. Who knew what weevils crawled in the hearts of the dim? He searched around for his voice for a moment or two, then found it. Don't worry, I'm just finishing up. All yours in a minute. Kevin returned to the mirror and almost had a heart attack for the second time in as many minutes. What the? There, in the fog on the mirror, was the smiley face Kevin had originally drawn. Huh? Jeremiah stepped into the room, following Kevin's gaze. For his part, Kevin eyed the looking glass suspiciously. Nothing. I just thought I saw something weird. He shook his head and popped his contacts in, the world suddenly turning intelligible. The smiley face on the mirror was dripping a little bit, but it was exactly what he'd tried to draw. I need some coffee. Kevin picked up his toiletries and stowed them back in the drawer, then started towards the door, only to find Jeremiah still there, blocking his way and looking at the ground like a 12-year-old boy in the girls' locker room. He dodged to the left, then to the right, but Jeremiah kept trying to go the same way. After a couple rounds of dancing the which way are you going jig, Kevin paused for a second, then slipped past Jeremiah to the left. Once passed, he stopped. He really should say something, and the guy really did look like an awkward teenager. He pivoted on his right foot to turn back to the kid. Sorry for getting so wound up the other day. Kevin tried to catch Jeremiah's eyes to show him that he was sincere, but Jeremiah kept his gaze firmly on the floor, flicking up Kevin's body to his face every once in a while, but never settling. What's going on with this kid? I'm not that intimidating, and I sure as hell ain't that sexy. Oh. Um... Yeah, sure. No problem. Forget it. Jeremiah just stood there. Kevin felt like he should say something to put the kid at ease, but nothing came to him. He pulled the towel off his shoulders and wrapped it around his waist, then turned his back on the kid and strolled down the hallway in search of some clothes. He wasn't in the room to see Jeremiah let out his breath and dab the sweat from his face in relief. You've been listening to Episode 7 of Down From 10, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. Starring T. Morris as Amos Maple, 
Philippa Ballantyne as Carol Lewis, Nathan Lowell as Gerd Falkstein, Miss Callender as Sarah Evans, Kitty Nakian as Katie Sato, Nobilis Reed as Kevin Walden, Chris Lester as Jeremiah Evans, and Christiana Ellis as Adele Surhan. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2009 Kitty McKeon and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 2009 J. Daniel Sawyer, based on a screenplay copyright 2008 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009 Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.5 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Hi, I'm Nobilis Reed, author and creator of Magical Clothes, the unauthorized, unexpurgated sequel to The Emperor's New Clothes. I'd like to invite you to a special event. There will be a Magical Clothes Marathon on Saturday, September 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Radio Dentata. I'll be in the Radio Dentata chat room through the whole show to talk about Magical Clothes, other shows like Heat Flash and Erotica a la Carte, and anything else that feels interesting. Get all the details at RadioDentata.com. This is Gail Carriger, author of Soulless, and you're listening to Down From Ten. Ghosts. Are they just memories in the spare room? The hard-headed physicist reaching through a mirror? Are they all hallucinating from oxygen deprivation? Or is it real? Is the house haunted? Or does all this have something to do with the mysterious figure from two nights ago? For that matter, what are they going to do to get out? This is the first of two episodes of Down From Ten that I'll be giving you this week. There was supposed to be one last Saturday, but I got bogged down with technical problems, which took me a while to solve as the rest of my life blew up for a little while. Fortunately, the net results are good. Sometimes when life blows up, it's creative destruction and results in something fabulous and sometimes technical problems leave you with a better setup than you started out with. Fortunately, both are true here. Because of that, I'll finish the backstory of Down From Ten for you next time. Our bumper this week is by Gail Carriger, whose forthcoming novel Soulless, now available for pre-order on Amazon, is likewise... Fabulous. I'm not a fan of romance novels, and it takes something really special to make me pay attention to a paranormal story. And she's hit this one out of the park. You can find my full review, entitled Etiquette by the Full Moon, at www.jdsawyer.net. There are some very cool things happening around the potosphere. First, news from T. Morris, the uber-nemesis of podcast fiction who chews the scenery for us here as Amos Maple. Well, after an unbelievably long hunt, he's landed a job that will let him play his talents as a social media pioneer to the hilts. He's got a blog post on the topic, and it's a must-read for authors, job seekers, and anyone who's having trouble with roadblocks and brick walls. He's also got a new book out called All of Twitter, which even critics of Twitter are reviewing positively. Granted, I've got a vested interest. My old avatar is on the cover, along with several other of our cast members and other leaders in the podcasting community. 
He's also started a new podcast about Twitter. How to use it, what to do, what not to do, how to make it work for you to do business outreach without shooting yourself in the foot, other fun stuff like that. It's called Birdhouse Rules, and you can find it at www.allatwitterbook.com or at www.imaginethatstudios.com slash Twitter. If you haven't heard T in his non-fictional capacity or seen his anti-social media videos on YouTube, you owe it to yourself to check this out. He's even wilder and more gregarious talking about Twitter than he is playing Billabub Battings. T and I are also putting together information for a definitive timeline of podcast fiction. If you have any important milestones besides the obvious ones involving J.C. Hutchins, Mer Lafferty, Scott Sigler, Philippa Ballantyne, and T. Morris... Please send them in to me at dan at jdsawyer.net so we can make sure we don't miss anything. For those of you in the San Francisco Bay Area, there is a special event this August the 12th, Wednesday at 7 p.m. Rick Stringer, producer of the excellent anthology show Variant Frequencies, is going to be in town. He and Chris Lester and myself and perhaps a couple of other podcasters, will be at Schroeder's in the Financial District in San Francisco for a pub meetup. Parking in the Embarcadero Center parking garage is cheap and only a block away. I hope you'll all come out. And Stephen Nelson, if you're listening, I owe you a big drink, so I hope you're able to make it up. Look for an eventful listing tomorrow and directions on the blog at jdsawyer.net and at downfrom10.jdsawyer.net. Orders have started coming in for the Predestination poster. Once we get 20, we'll place the print order and start shipping them out. Pre-orders get signed and numbered posters, so don't delay. You can find the order information on all three blogs and under the swag tab at www.jdsawyer.net. Remember, if you're listening to the Antithesis feed, only the first 10 episodes of Down From 10 will be posting there. After that, you'll need to switch to either the Down From 10 feed or the jdsawyer.net Uber feed, which is, of course, the one I recommend. You can find all my feeds in the right sidebar at www.jdsawyer.net. Thank you very, very much for the feedback, positive, negative, and mixed, that you've sent in so far. We just got done recording a feedback show, which will drop next week. Um, had a lot of fun. You guys fucking rock. Remember, you can leave questions, comments, criticisms, and whatever else you like. Yeah, okay, fine. Questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats at dan at jdsawyer.net or on the blog at downfrom10.jdsawyer.net. You can call and leave voicemail at area code 206-350-5739. And of course, if you're enjoying yourself, please do tell your friends. Spread the corruption far and wide. Let us get everyone hooked on this lurid little tale of snowbound hedonism in the mountains. And if that's not enough, you can post a review on iTunes or blog about the show. Also, please remember that you can drop a couple of bucks in the tip bar at dan at jdsawyer.net and on the Down From 10 blog at www.jdsawyer.net and a portion of all the tips you drop also go to our composer extraordinaire, Danny Shade. Next week, our heroes decide how to handle their unfortunate avalanche and opinion might not be unanimous. Cabin fever can do odd things to people, so we might be in for a bit of a rough ride. So tune in this weekend, and remember always, they will burn the world just when 
we've all counted down from 10. 